Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Heroes Mindset Podcast. Today, I have on Katie North with me, the author of The Resiliency Effect. How are you doing, Katie? I'm good, Nick. How are you? I'm doing great. So actually, when I like to start up my podcast, I like to start them up by asking you your personal story and how you got started. Actually, in your book, you detail a lot about, you know, how you got started with ACEs and, um, what you could describe and and just essentially your entire career journey. And um, I'd love for me and everyone else to hear your story. Yeah, um, that sounds great. So I, a um, long time ago, an undergrad actually majored in government and um, I actually had to work my way through school. Um, one of the things I had to do was um, support myself from you know, every dollar for every dollar, basically of tuition. Um, so I was working full time in my undergrad and I wasn't, you know, working at the school library or a restaurant or something like that. I actually was working for the former speaker of the house in the Texas mm-hmm. legislature. Um, and so I got an early look at what it meant to like have a lobbying firm, be a consultant, um, do sort of government work um, in a kind of, you know, career public servant sort of a um, kind of an experience while I was doing my undergraduate education. Um, And I think that was really helpful to have as an experience because um, I I got to see not just like, you know, email, how email communication should work, um, you know, when I'm uh, 18, 19, 20 years old, right? But, um, you know, how some of these jobs, like more nebulous jobs or strange jobs in the government profession um, can work. You know, uh, one of the things that I was working on, for instance, was affordable housing projects. Um, believe it or not, affordable housing projects need lobbyists to help them get passed and, and um, you know, to make sure that they get the right tax credits that they're supposed to get. And so, you know, some of the projects I was working on was interviewing some of these people to make sure that the best information about their projects were um, being publicized correctly. And uh, I learned early on that government work is a lot like PR work. You know, it's just the the people that you're trying to discuss and communicate with are members of Congress and their staff or members of the legislature and their staff. Um, So that set me up pretty well, actually, to as soon as I was graduated to land a pretty good job working for the Texas Department of Transportation, which eventually put me um, in Washington, D.C. as a liaison for the state government on issues related to um, transportation, finance, the budget, all those sorts of things. Um, so pretty early in my career, I was doing a lot of um, what I would say big things, like le- not necessarily entry level type work. Um, and uh, when I came to Washington DC in 2007, I thought it was gonna be a very temporary thing. Like I was gonna go on my assignment, I was gonna do my thing, um, and then I would get back to Texas at some point. Um, But what I discovered, um, because in my book, the opening chapter is really about why I I left for DC, which was more, which was less about the career and more about personal stuff that was going on in my life um, at the time, um, is that I actually really enjoyed DC and I enjoyed the growth and the, um, I don't know, the um, independence that I had, um, leaving behind so many of the things that I had experienced as a child and a young adult uh, in my home. And um, so I decided to stay in DC and I ended up, um, you know, kind of hopping around to, to a few different positions. I worked in public policy for a national trade association called Financial Executives International, um, working on all kinds of different um, 
legislative policy. And it was right at the time when the, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 was unfolding. And also Congress's response to that crisis was also being created and unfolding. And so I was working with Fortune 500 CEOs and, and um, CFOs on kind of the public policy discussion around how Congress should respond to the financial crisis. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you were living in Texas, right? And and um, we don't have to get too into it, but I mean, you had you had some traumatic experiences growing up and also leaving Texas. You just decided, as you know, as a as a young adult, to just you know volunteer and say, "Hey, listen, I want to go from Texas to Washington D.C. Like, I just mm-hmm. wanna, I just wanna start over. I just kind of wanna explore, right? Really explore yourself and explore outside of your known territory of Texas." What was it inside of you that, um, you know, I, I bet most people really didn't want to leave, right? Most people love staying within comfort, staying in their own home. What was mm-hmm. it that gave you that, that drive to really just be like, you know what, I'm, I want to explore? Well, I mean, I call it doing a geographical, right? It's sort of like if you can just pick up and stop everything, it's almost yeah. like, um, in a sense, you're running from whatever you would experience. And, and that was the case for me. But also, um, it is an opportunity to kind of start fresh. And yeah. uh, the hope is that you won't experience things that you experienced prior um, in the new place um, yeah. once you do a geographical. Um, and I don't know if that's that's something that runs in my family or not, but like my, I mean, my mother and father didn't live in the place where they grew up. Um, many mm. of my aunts and uncles don't live where they grew up. So it was maybe already ingrained in me and my family that um, it's okay to do a geographical. It's okay to like pick up and leave and <laughs> go somewhere that you're, where your home isn't located. Um, yeah. And so part of that, I guess, maybe was modeled for me too. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So you you talk a lot about in your book of going on our inner journeys, right? Like sort of really trying to go and understand ourselves. And that's such a powerful idea. You know, my podcast is called The Hero's Mindset. And a big part of heroes, right, in hero stories is that they must go outside of their home. They must leave their home, mm-hmm. you know, to... Um, to go to really understand themselves, they must go into a forest or they must go, you know, to New York City or just something like that to yeah. really understand themselves. And um, do you find that when you were in DC, you really got to, you know, understand things about yourself that you had no idea were there? Um, I think there was some of that, but I think where the reason why um, the hero's journey follows that formula is because you learn not just about yourself, but in traveling and seeing new places, you learn more about how other people do things and different Mm -hmm. cultures and different um, ways of life that I think influence how you see yourself or how you see what is possible. And so... um, I definitely had that experience um, in my early my early days when I first got to DC, and um, you know, having to have not knowing anyone, um, having to make friends and find new things that I was interested in, um, hobby wise, and uh, spend time on my job and the career kind of space and learning a lot of new things there too. Yeah, no, I think I, I think. Um, it- it is really interesting, you know, um, just going through and being able to kind of, um, kind of, kind of learn like more about, yeah, like the, the cultures and especially the culture in Washington, DC, you know, um, did you find that when you were going through there, it was moving you on a path? So I know right right now you are not, uh, I'm not going to say, yeah, you are not in, 
you know, um, legislation or anything like that, did you find that moving to DC was allowing you to move closer to your dreams or, you know, where you are now? Um, no, actually, <laughs> um, hmm. I, um, my move to DC was, it was very reactionary. It was, you know, my boss basically said, Hey, you know, we're reorg, we're going to do a reorg. And, um, most of us are going to be spending a lot more time in DC. And that was, that was basically all he said. And I sort of followed him out of the office and said, I'm going to raise my hand. I'll do it. And for me, I think it was, it was about the adventure and it was about, um, being able to do something new. It had nothing to do with what, where I ultimately wanted to be, which was doing personal finance one-on-one -on -one with people where, which yeah. is where I am now and have been for the, the, the last five years. However, you know, I was able to parlay that experience eventually, like the different yeah. the career hops that I made um, into kind of a more financial role, which led me, you know, to where I am today. So, um, you know, I think what happens with most people's careers is it ends up being a little bit of like a splatter paint job on the wall that yes, you can design it to some degree, but a lot of times your experiences will, will actually influence where you end up. And so you'll make little changes along the way and, and you'll kind of, you know, do a little, a few lateral moves and a little few, you know, um, moves up on the ladder itself. And um, it just kind of ends up being uh, more of an art, art um, project than it is like a, a linear path. Well, it's interesting because you are one of the few people, you know, in our generation today, um, I'm a college student and most of the people listening are college students. And what I find is that a lot of the college students that I know don't really get started until they're told to get started, right? Like graduating college, getting your first job, kind of at like 22 and things like that. You know, you started at, first of all, your parents own a company. So you were starting working, you know, when you're eight years old. And then also you got started working once you were like 18 years old and, you know, mm -hmm. like started to experience your own things. Do you recommend that people do that? And do you find that it was actually beneficial for you to actually get started early? I, I actually do. I think it's very beneficial. Um, I know today there's a lot of pressure on kids to um, take part in extracurricular activities and yeah. try to do an internship and try to do X, Y, and Z. And it becomes about volume versus quality. And I think in my case, you know, I had the benefit of of having that quality and not necessarily mm. the volume of jobs per se, of like spending a lot of time in one place and learning the ins and outs versus having like a rush job of three months at an internship um, yeah. where you end up doing kind of so-called grunt work um, yeah. for people. And it's not to say those, those opportunities are not valuable because they really can be and you can make anything out of any opportunity that you have. But I actually really do advocate for people having real world experience while they're in college because it helps inform how you want, what you wanna major in. in. And if you already know what you wanna major in, what you wanna study or research or write about while you're in college and what you wanna dive in further. Um, and not just that, but there is a whole ocean of difference between the real, what I'll say the real world and real world work versus academic work. And so to, to kind of have the opportunity to, to experience those all at once is helpful. However, there is a flip side to all this. And it's, you know, the flip side is I didn't have a traditional college sort of experience, you know, like I never went on spring breaks. Um, I mm. never had summer vacations. Um, 
you know, and, and I was, I was a bit more of a goody two shoes and sort of, um, you know, my, my nose was always in a book and I was always trying to get through, you know, the college aspect versus savor it and experience it that, um, that, that people can have. Yeah. Well, it seems like me and you are kind of one in the same because I, I have a very similar experience. You know, I'm 19 years old. I'm a sophomore in college. And um, yeah, I don't party. I don't go out and do like all the crazy stuff. You know, I, I very much limit that. And um, another thing is that I find that I spend too much time. Um, you know, you, you described it actually in your book as the addiction to busyness. And I noticed mm. that sometimes I get caught in that, you know, like I'll put in like the 13, 15 hour days where most people will say like, you're stupid. Why are you working so much? And I'll say, yes, it is stupid. Why am I working so much? But at the same time, I I have this sort of need to, um, I feel like if I'm not doing something, then I am useless. I feel like I'm, um, I'm not contributing any value to society, to Mm -hmm. myself, to really anything. And, um, I I like to know, you know, like you, you have sort of made it out on the other side of this. So I'd love to know, like, you know, your experience with that and how you've been able to get through it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a journey. Um, it's still, it's still a journey to be honest. I mean, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I, I've been an entrepreneur for, for five years and, um, I, I'm the only one who can give myself permission, right. To, (laughs) to give myself a break. Um, and I think one of the strategies or techniques that I use to make sure that that happens is it's something I measure. I actually measure the number of days I take off. I measure, really? you know, even in a week, you know, how many meetings that I'm, that I want to uh, boost up into my calendar, you know, and I want to make sure that I have adequate time set aside, not just for like structured thinking time, but unstructured non-thinking time too. I mean, taking <laughs> a walk is valuable use of my time. And if you asked me when I was 19, I would not have said that taking a walk was a valuable use of my time necessarily. Um, I would have, I would have, like you said, I need to, I need to be doing something productive and achievement focused and working towards something because otherwise I'm not worth it. And uh, it took a long time to discover that that's really the hole that I was trying to fill was this worthiness piece and the self-esteem piece. Um, And, and so a lot of my journey is, is about that exactly. And it's, it's what I share in my book is, you know, there's a whole amount, there's a whole array of inner work that we all have to do to figure out where does that come from? And what does it mean for me if I let it go? And is there a way for me to do enough and be okay? And, um, and I think part of that for me is even just saying that like today I am enough and mm-hmm. believing it instead of it just being sort of lip service. You know, yeah, um, well, that's that's something that I learned uh, about, I would say, about a month ago, two months ago. I realized that, you know, the downtime that we have, like these, these, for example, walking, right? Like I started taking walks every day, like a month or two ago. And you notice that so- something like that, you know, like being able to unwind your brain and really trying to understand the things that, you know, that go on and trying to understand your, your own, yeah, we'll say your own brain, you know, like trying to do that is so valuable right like it might not be contributing value to you know a company or to the world or anything like that but you're you're understanding yourself and that contributes value to yourself there was one thing that you put in the book that i really liked it was um it was the idea of the of the mask right where you if the plane's going down you put on the oxygen mask on yourself first and then you go and focus on others and you say that we should apply that also to mental health and how Mm -hmm. um 
and how we should we should focus on ourselves first. I'd love to mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love for to hear what you uh, what you have on that. Yeah, I mean, I think mental health in general is something that anyone and everyone can do uh, could do a lot more learning on, and it, it is my hope, honestly, that the the newer generation of like children growing up now do have much more exposure to even from a young age, learning what emotions they're feeling when they're feeling it. You know, as a, you think of like a, um, a toddler having a tantrum, right? And the reason why the tantrum is taking place is because they don't fully understand what they're upset about. They're just upset, you know? Yeah. And I think we go through life sort of having those experiences where we have no effing clue why we're upset or what's going on. We're just acting, um, in response to things, you know, it's a, it's a very reactionary, our emotions tend to be very reactionary. And for, for those of us who have, if you haven't done work, right. If you haven't done some of this inner work, you may be far less inclined to even be able to identify that you're feeling angry or why the, why the anger is there. Is it fear? Um, Do you feel like there's some uh, something unjust happening in the world. Um, do you, do you even know where the anger is coming from, right? Do you even know that you're actually angry? Because many of us are are um, taught that anger is a very bad thing, and so we'll push it down and not even allow ourselves to feel it, even though it's justified. Um, and so, you know, I think part of that putting the oxygen mask on yourself is getting comfortable with emotions and being able to, in the moment, figure out what am I feeling. And where is this feeling coming from? And and then to be able to communicate that with other people in in relationships, in your job, um, you know. And it's not to say everyone needs to have kumbaya moments or um, or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is to have an awareness uh, is very powerful. Yeah. And I think when we're dealing with some of those uh, those fuzzy issues of needing to push ourselves into a obliv- work ourselves into oblivion to feel like we're worth something. Um, it's worth digging into some of the emotions wrapped up in that so that you yeah. can um, maybe just give, give it a little less power by speaking truth to it, you know? Yeah, there was, there's, um, so your book, right? It is called The Resiliency Effect. And it's all about, you know, resiliency, which we could define as being able to grow. You define it as being able to um, overcome obstacles in a, in a somewhat quick fashion, right? Trying to, um, trying to overcome the things that you experience in your life and really growing from them. And um, you say, right, so, you know, um, you said that 64% of people have um, gone through some sort of adverse childhood experience where they really, you know, there's, there's some really traumatic experience that happens in them. And then what you said, which I think was one of the most powerful things is this idea of introspection and understanding yourself and really like, you know, getting into the depths of your thoughts, you know, like uh, different from the toddler who just doesn't understand why he's mad. He's just mad. Right you say that this is one of the most important things. So why do you think that on the topic of resiliency, why do you think that introspection and understanding yourself is so important? I mean, that's how we learn, right? I mean, um, introspection is how we learn from experiences that we've had and make the choice to, um, 
to grow in a way that's beneficial to us and, and other people around us. You know, resiliency in and of itself is actually a double-edged sword. You know, we mm. can take coping mechanisms that we developed as a result of traumas or experiences or adverse, Excellent. you know, adverse experiences that we had and a coping mechanism could actually harm us. You know, the thing, the very thing that makes us resilient like for instance, for me growing up in the household that I did, it was always about, yes, I can do it. If I can't do it, I'll figure out how I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna do it by myself, damn it. Um, that, that kind of experience or that um, mindset is, is, makes me resilient. It makes me absolutely resilient because it doesn't really matter what happens to me. I'm gonna figure a way out of it or a way to cope with it, right? But where that double-edged sword comes in is if I'm always doing things alone and I'm never seeking input from anyone, it, my world is gonna be very myopic and my view of the world is gonna be very small. And, and also my ability to connect with others is gonna be very small if I never include anyone in my thought process or ask for help um, or have collective decision-making, right? And yeah. so there is a double-edged sword there that we all have to be aware of. And I think that self-reflection is what gives us that information of how we gone a little too far. The pendulum has it swung a little too far in one direction. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the most important things that you talked about that I, I started to understand a little bit about myself in there. It's like, whenever you experience any sort of traumatic event, right? Any, anything, you know, like a sudden event, right? Uh, something that will give you like a mild form of PTSD or at the same time, just, um, just something that was building up over time, maybe like a breach of trust or something like that, your body and your brain naturally develop some sort of coping mechanism, no matter what it is. So for example, we'll, we'll take a lighthearted example. Uh, I was working in a team a while ago, you know, I think it was in high school. And I vividly remember when I, um, when the team really let me down, like they really, like, you know, we were working on um, a school project and I ended up having to do all the work, just a simple experience that you think would have very little effect. But then I realized for the next X amount of years, I would say three or four years, I dedicated a lot of time in group projects to being like, all right, guys, don't worry. You guys could just sit in the back burner. I got it. Don't worry. Like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take care of it. And like, I, I really like learned that I can't trust people. I can't, you know, um, you know, bring in all of the other people's work because, you know, I don't trust that they're going to get it done in time and I don't trust they're going to do it properly. And, um, and that was a coping mechanism that, mechanism that I naturally learned. And it took me a while to really understand exactly, okay, here's my, here's my coping mechanism. Here's what I did to, to overcorrect it. And here's what I, here's what I need to do to bring it back. And, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think people live their entire lives. That's the problem. People live their entire lives, not understanding these coping mechanisms and it causes a lot of problems. For sure. Yeah. I mean, imagine you can take that to the extreme, right? And like uh, a partner relationship and, oh no, honey, don't worry. I'll do all of this. Imagine the resentment that will build up over time for you and the people that you work with um, in your job or, or in your, you know, for school or with your relationships in the future, right? I mean, um, that's one thing that I always have to guard against is do I start building up resentments the more of this individualistic um kind of attitude that I, that I have, or I'll take it on. No problem. I'm efficient. Yeah. I can handle it. I can do this and that. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's a real barb that comes from this is resentment. Yeah. And, um, it can turn you very bitter, very quickly. You know, um, you can feel like nobody else is worth it or, um, 
you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a sad state to be in. And I speak from experience, like having developed resentments in my life where it was really my own doing. It had nothing to do with the other person. Yeah. And that's one of those things. It's like, actually there was a study that came out. Um, it, it was a so- sociology study where they talked about marriage partners, right? If you are in a marriage relationship and one person puts in like 80% of the work and the other puts in 20, no matter what, if there is an imbalance, then actually the other partner almost automatically starts to feel some sort of resentment. Mm-hmm. Like it needs to be this sort of like, you know, like running on the same level. And what happens if you don't do that is, um, you know, imagine if someone's putting in 80% of the work and the other person's putting in 20, there's this innate sense of fairness that we have that mm-hmm. makes us sit there and say, wait a second, this isn't fair. Why am I putting 80% when you're only putting in 20% of the work? And this, this is true in, it's gotta be true in relationships, in jobs, in, um, in, uh, friendships, right? Like all of these mm-hmm. things, if, if someone's putting in more of the work, then you're going to develop this sense of resentment. And, um, and you're right. I think that's one of the scariest things. It's part of our own doing. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, another thing that you talked about in being able to get over uh, resiliency or being resilient is um, unlearning the old patterns that we had. You know, one of, uh, one of the most important, I guess, We'll say, we'll say stories that I've ever heard was through this guy. His name was Frederick Nietzsche, and um, he's a philosopher. And he said that there, when we are, when we grow up, we, our, our journey goes from a camel to a lion to a child. And that is mm-hmm. the story of humanity or a good human. And what happens is when we are younger, we are camels. And as camels, we actually, you know, we put, we get on our knees and we say, put a load on me, right? Give me this, mm-hmm. um, give me, you know, knowledge, give me rules. Um, I'm going to obey to you. Like all these things happen. And then eventually we, as that camel, we, est- we establish like the rules of society, you know, and uh, the rules of how we should, how we should live. And then eventually we uh, become a lion. We walk into the woods as the camel and we turn into a lion. And our job is to fight a dragon. And the dragon is, um, is covered in gold. And on each of his scales along his body, it says, thou shall, thou shall, thou shall. And, mm-hmm. um, and the whole idea is this dragon is the rules that you've established, but you need to fight them. Because some of these rules that you've established within yourself, within society, the rules that you've been taught, all these things are somewhat tyrannical, right? They actually, um, they actually have a negative effect on your life. So that is the process of unlearning. And I do want to know, you know, um, what you found is your process of unlearning and also how does that contribute to resiliency? Yeah, um, I think the first part of the process is just understanding that that's the state you're in is unlearning, um, you know, because I think for most of us, you know, we grow up just absorbing information and knowledge, you know, school teaches us that we're supposed to learn stuff, we don't know it, so we have to learn it. And we have to keep learning. And many of us get stuck in this loop too, where we feel like we have to continue to pursue educational pursuits so that we can be worth it, that we can prove that we, we can, that we're good enough. And so uh, in my work as a financial advisor, I see that often, you know, where people who are already highly educated are saying, oh, I, I've got to go back to school because I've got to do this or that. And I've got to prove to myself. And it's like, the information is within you, right? And so at some point, you're right. We do have to get to a point where we have to decide, okay, 
is it all, is it about a lifelong learning situation or are there things that we need to let go of and unlearn? And for me, the thing, the big thing I had to unlearn that could get me in, aligned with my ultimate purpose was that having a business is a risky and basically burn, will burn you and burn you out completely. Um, my parents, of course, were small business owners. They own motel properties and I helped out as a young child. Um, and I saw firsthand how stressful it was for them to own a business and for them to yeah. manage it in the context, not just their own relationship, but in the context of being parents and being people. And so I, I always said to myself when people would ask me, oh, I never want to start a business and here's why. It was always too stressful for my parents and, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, and then I found myself um, getting my MBA, you know, as one of those things of like a checkbox of like, well, I am kind of bored now. Maybe I should just go back to school and learn more. Um, and, but actually what I discovered through my MBA coursework is, you know, you can, you have more agency than you think when you are in business for yourself and you can, you have the keys to the kingdom in that you can design not only your schedule, but you can design who you want to work with and how you want to work with those people and the significance of what any of that means uh, for you as a business owner, right? And so um, I just really took that to heart and I realized, you know, I don't have to do things the way my parents did them. Um, I don't have to set myself up to be on the hustle constantly and trying to, you know, jump through more and more hoops and burn myself out more and more. In fact, being a business owner could be a way to get me out of that feedback loop that I consistently found myself in, in the corporate world. And um, so that was a huge unlearning process of, of me unlearning a lot of those experiences that um, had been in my family, you know, um, for, for yeah. generations likely. So what made you able to, you know, one of, one of the things that most people struggle with in, you know, I go to a business school and in the business school, people love to go into corporate, right? They really want to go into a corporate and then get a job and then maybe start a company in the future. That's usually the narrative that I hear. And the big problem that they have, and it's a fear, right? It's the fear of risk, right? The fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I want to start up my own company, I, I fear that maybe I'll fail, right? And that's one of the problem things that I had to unlearn when I was um, when I was going to be an entrepreneur and all these things. And uh, I want to know: Did you ever have that fear of failure, that fear of risk? And uh, if you did, then what did you do to unlearn it? Yeah, I mean, I would characterize uh, my entirety of my twenties and much of my thirties to be: um, I wouldn't try anything unless I had almost a hundred percent guarantee that I would be successful. Mm. And so um, I kept myself very safe. Um, by having consistent wins in my back pocket, but it was never very risky at all. Um, and so the idea of starting a business, it was huge for me to unlearn the idea of taking a risk. Um, and, it, and it was hard too, because you have people around you when you become a business owner asking you questions like, and they come with their own baggage too, of whether their parents were business owners or whatever. And they say things to you like, are you sure you want to do this? You're leaving yeah. your job for what and <laughs> what is happening and what's the plan, you know, and, and you're made to feel as if, if you don't already have all of the answers, you have no business doing this, but really the whole, the whole idea of doing any of this inner journey, any of the, any of the inner work is to be okay with failure and risk, because that's how we learn. And that's how we, that's how we discover new things. I mean, one of my huge failures was I failed calculus in college 
And here I am a financial advisor, very, you know, I work in spreadsheets day in and day out and I help people with their finances and I failed calculus. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was a huge turning point for me um, in my, in my career. Right. In that I, you know, I stopped pursuing an, an economics degree in my undergrad and I ended up doing the government path. And that turned out to be a tremendously valuable experience for me um, doing that. And had I remained in economics, I think I probably would have hated my life. <laughs> I mean, no <laughs> offense to any economists out there, but I think I would have not enjoyed that path at all. Um, and so, you know, things happen. We, we learn yeah. from our, our failures. And I think, um, you know, a hallmark of resiliency is being, you know, it's not just avoiding failure, which many of us feel like that's what re resiliency is. It's actually being okay with failure and finding ways to learn despite failure. Yeah. Well, you also did something that was really interesting. When you decided to start up your own company, I was actually talking to this, uh, this woman named Nikki Groom on my podcast. And she said, she goes, I have never in my life taken a step that was too far. Like I've never taken a huge step that required a lot of risk and a lot of um, change and, um, and brought me too far into the unknown. So for example, for her case, she was running her own company. And then on the side, she started to uh, create her own blog and create her own business. And then eventually she did like a nice shift once the business made enough money. You took a, a little step further, right? You decided you had three years worth of cash saved up, but at the same time, you decided I am going on a sabbatical for my job. I am done with this job. Maybe I could go back to in the future, but I am going to try to start something new. I'm not going to make any income for, I think it was nine months and, um, and I'm going to try to get started. So first of all, what was it that, um, like what, what specific moment really made you decide, you know what, I am going to I'm done with this and um, I'm going to try to start something new for myself. Yeah. I mean, my, my job um, while I was at Bloomberg, I, I was trying to um, move into a, a bit of like a new space and new department. Um, having done my MBA, I had a lot of new knowledge and new insights. And um, part of the issue in a corporate job in a corporate environment is that you often cannot control your destiny with those sorts of things. And yeah. you can, you can make all the inroads you want and land on the team that you want, but then you're there and maybe it's not such a good fit after all, or maybe you were trying to sort of fit a square peg in a round hole and no one's going to really be there to, with a parachute to like help you land softly, I guess. Um, and, you know, so that's where I found myself is that I had done all this work to go to go in a, in a direction that I thought was the direction I wanted to go professionally. And I got there and it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And it wasn't a good fit for me either. And um, I was traveling back and forth from New York to DC every other week. And it was exhausting. Um, yeah, I was completely, like completely burned out completely. And I finally relented from the burnout. And I, I said, I have to leave. Um, you know, I'm, I'm done. And I, and it was right before I finished my MBA too. I was like turning in my final project and um, all at once there was many new endings and new beginnings. Um, yeah. And it just, I think that's sort of the way um, my brain works. It's like black and white thinking, right? It's like, if it's on, we're on and we're going really <laughs> hard. And if it's off, we're shutting it all down. And that's sort yeah. of what I did um, at that moment is, you know, got, you know, graduated, left the job, decided that it really needed to be a complete shutdown of work for a while so that I could reset myself. Yeah. And in your book, you actually recommend 
that people do take sabbatical. You recommend that people take time. If you have enough money, if you have enough finances, obviously as a personal finance person, you believe that if you have enough, um, enough finances, then just take some time off for yourself. Try to really reorient yourself. Why do you really suggest that? And, um, and yeah, how much did it really do for you in terms of creating your own business? Well, I got used to not achieving. That was the number one goal, uh, not even a goal, but it was the, it was a side effect, maybe unintended of taking a sabbatical and that, you know, um, I would, I would get bored and I would like look at the, um, the, the cracks in the, uh, in my wooden floor and think, <laughs> oh my God, I've got to do something about these cracks. And then I would, in the next moment, I would say, wow this is how bad it's gotten and that I can't even like be quiet and do nothing for five minutes where I'm searching, literally searching for a to-do list item. Yeah. The moment I am quiet and, and, you know, at homeostasis. And so for me, that was a real eye opener of like, okay, I need to just chill and I need to learn how to be okay with just being as opposed to needing to be a human doing. And, um, and so that's what my sabbatical taught me was how to get comfortable with that uncomfortableness. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people need at this point because that burnout is a total epidemic in the country. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you're not dying from it, you're slowly dying from it because it's gonna end up being, you know, led, leading to chronic diseases of all kinds of things. Um, and you so- You actually put it in your book. You said the WHO called it an occupational phenomenon, burnout. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's actually really scary. One of, one of the things about burnout that really freaks me out is that people just don't have hobbies, right? Like, you know, you spend, yeah. right? Like we all have this, this idea that um, we need to be working. We need to be constantly going, going, going. The only problem with that is if you spend 80 hours a week going, going, going on the same thing, then you're going to eventually burn out. So um, mm -hmm. do you find that in your life you've, you've developed, you know, either actually, what route have you taken? Have you developed more hobbies or at the same time, have you just been able to sit alone in a room with yourself and really not like feel the need to do anything? A little of both. And I think, um, you know, my first couple of years, well, during my sabbatical, my, my intent was not to take on a bunch of hobbies other than just to have a healthy lifestyle, like getting to workouts and going to see friends and that sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, so I went from that extreme of trying to like not fill my life with a lot of things um, to now five years into having my business and, you know, with a goal being to take 60 days off a year and to have a year where you're not allowed to travel due to COVID is, yeah. is frustrating. And so I have taken on a lot of new, new hobbies this year. Part of it has been an exploration and creativity just as like to give myself a sandbox of, you know, what are the things that, that I enjoy and that give me energy um, and what are the things that I can create and offer, even if it's just to myself, um, and not necessarily yeah. things to create for the world, but, um, and so I think it shifts and changes, you know, and I think there's a season for all these things. And, um, but what I have learned is that a lot of the hobbies and the time off and all of that influences how I work, right. It, it gives me an opportunity to think about how I think about things and think about, um, the, the knowledge and the wisdom that I have and can then share those thoughts clearly and concisely with others. Um, if you're working all the time, when, when I was working constantly, I never had such insights. I never, never was able to um, break for a moment to, to have that reflection and have the, the key lessons, right? And so um, 
I think the time off, I think the hobbies, I think not pigeonholing yourself into like a one single lane, um, all of it influences how our uniqueness and our, you know, what we bring as, as a person to the world. And um, I think it's really important to develop and explore lots of that stuff. Well, that's the thing. You break the stereotype of every entrepreneur ever, right? You completely break it. You know, you imagine entrepreneur, it's the person who puts in the 80 hour weeks. It's the person who, you know, grinds himself to the bone and really, uh, we could say maybe loves it, right? The entrepreneur who, who really enjoys like putting in 80 hour weeks, sort of like an Elon Musk type. But uh, you have a goal to do apparently 60 days of days off for an entire mm -hmm. year. So how did you come up with that? Like, what was it that gave you the idea of, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, but at the same time, I'm going to take two months off a year of, of, of not doing any of the entrepreneurial work? Well, honestly, this is a, this is sort of like a tantrum dating back from my corporate experience, right? It's like <laughs> you, they give you, you start off when you, when you first get a job, you might get two weeks off a year. Yeah. Um, before I left my corporate job, I, I had um, 20 days off a year. And even that, I found that it wasn't quite enough. Like there were times when I just wanted a few extra days here and there. Yeah. And um, especially while I was getting my MBA and had to like go to a part-time schedule at work in order to complete my MBA. It's like, I needed more time off as a result. You know what I mean? And yeah, so it's, it, when I designed for myself, you know, what, what was possible and what I was going to create as norms for myself in my business, I knew that that was going to be a hallmark of mine of like time off is, is important. And, um, you know, so I wanted to at least double what I had at my corporate job, but I found that a 60 days off was nice because it means I could take my husband and I could take like a three week or a four week um, vacation and spend time in Asia or spend time in Europe without yeah. any issue at all. Um, without feeling guilty, without feeling like we're missing something, without feeling like, um, you know, we're leaving something behind. So, and so, so yeah, yeah I, mean, I just gave myself permission. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, a somebody who's looking on the outside in or from the outside, yeah, from the outside in would be saying, hey, listen, you know, you're an entrepreneur, right? Like, don't you need to be monitoring your business at all times? And don't you need to, um, aren't you going to be losing two, two months worth of revenue, profit, all these things? Have you found that it actually has helped your business? Or do you find that um, it is just good for your personal life and you really need it to be able to sustain the business properly? Well, I mean, it's good for my clients because I'm rested and I'm not running ragged and I know exactly everything that's going on in their lives and I can get up to speed very quickly. Um, most people who are in my industry have 200 plus clients that they're dealing with. And I don't know about you, but I think there's been, I mean, there's been studies that show that you basically can have about a hundred relationships. Yeah, and yeah. after that, you know, it's not really it's not really much of a relationship. Do you know what I'm saying? And yeah, so to so have much. norms, yeah, to, to have the norms in the wealth management industry of needing to work with 200 people is first of all, ridiculous because yeah. no one can do that and do it well. Um, and so I intentionally keep my business small in that I, I only work with about 50, maybe 60 as a cap households. And wow. um, I do that by design because I, I wanna make sure that I do my best work for the people that I work with and taking the time off, you know, helps me keep that balance, but also, you know, there's no temptation for me to start taking on creeping in to take on more and more people. Yeah. Um, 
because it means that everyone else's relationship with me will suffer, you know? Yeah. Well, do you also find that now that you have only 50 to 60 clients instead of 200, do you find that you, um, or do you at least make a good effort to try to develop personal relations with them in your, in your work? Or is it, is there still a level of professionality that's really difficult in like breaking down walls? No, I mean, I think that's what makes me unique and different in, in the offering that I have as a financial advisor is, you know, I, before I offer any advice whatsoever on your finances, I want to learn about you and your values and your goals for your life and not just superficial things like I want a vacation home. I want to do this. I want to do that. It's like, what do you want to accomplish in your life? And so we're going to dive into that and we're going to spend a lot of time on it before I even offer a single advice about your investments or your retirement plan, you know, mm-hmm. um, because if we don't have that information, it, we're going to be very inaccurate in the advice that, that we give. Uh, and so part of my process is getting to know the client really well on a, on a deeply personal level. Well, that's the struggle that I, um, that I think is probably the biggest problem, right? Is when you meet these people as a financial advisor, do you notice or do you find that these people don't really have themselves figured out and they don't really know what they want? Yeah. I mean, I would say that's a lot of the times the case. Um, You know, most of them know something about what they want because that's what calls them to call on a financial advisor, right? There's a problem they're trying to solve. There's a a challenge they're, they're experiencing. Um, And so there's something they want to accomplish. And most of them can name big goals that they have for themselves, but very few of them are actually living many of those goals. And so a lot of my work is to try to figure out, okay, what is something you can do to, to work on this now? Or if you can't do this now, you know, what is the feeling that you get when you think about making this big move and, you know, going off and making this big career change? And is there a way to get some of that feeling in your life now? If so, how, and what, what would you do to get there? And, um, and so my role, I see my role as a facilitator. I don't have all the answers and I don't presume to know all the answers for all these people, but I want to help them figure out what that is and help them unlock that for themselves. And so I just hold space. I, you know, I hold the space for them to, to do some of that work. Well, it seems like you're, you're, doing, you're doing some semi-psychologist work because it really sounds like you're trying to help them understand what they want. And it also sounds like maybe they don't even know what they want. Maybe they come to you saying, you know, um, I want to change my careers, but they don't really know the answer of why do I want to change my careers? Where do I want to go to? And all these things. So do you find that your job as a facilitator is really trying to help them understand themselves a little bit more? Uh, understand themselves, understand experiences, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I view my work as more of like in the coaching profession than in the psychology profession, though. I mean, mm. I myself have done a lot of therapy. I, I you know, I'm not a therapist. I, yeah. I really just hold space for people and, um, you know, let them try to uncover what, what already exists in their brain, but bring it out into the open, basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think it is really interesting. There's one topic that I did want to hit on in terms of um, financial advising. And I, this is something that I find is a huge misconception about retirement, but at the same time, I'm 19 years old and maybe my ignorance is really getting to me. So <laughs> I must ask the question, um, I'll, I'll preface it with this. There's this man, his name's Dean Kazanis. He's a, um, 
he's a runner. He, he spends all of his life running marathons and multi uh, ultra marathons and all these things. And he says that he is happiest when he is running. He is not happiest when he's sitting on the couch. And his idea is that he said, he has a great quote. He goes, somewhere along the line, we have confused happiness with comfort. And it's a strong belief that, you know, um, when we go on vacations, right, it should be a tropical vacation rather than climbing up a mountain or, you know, um, doing something that's, that's challenging, but fun, you know, um, and then also in retirement, right? So getting back to retirement, it's like some people believe that they should kind of just like retire and move down to Florida and just kind of like live out their days in, you know, some warm tropical place where they could just sort of lay there. My uncle, when I told him that, he said, you're essentially waiting for the bus. That was the phrase that he used. He said, you're just waiting for the bus to come take you. There's no meaning in that. There's nothing valuable in that. And um, he says that he wants to do something in his life that's a little bit more struggle filled, you know, like challenging, meaningful, struggling things where you could keep growing and keep pursuing instead of sort of slowly deteriorating. Do you find that in your, so obviously I favor the latter, but um, do you find that in, uh, in financial advising for people who are trying to plan their retirements that they spend a lot of their time trying to plan for comfort or do you find that they spend a lot of time planning for the meaningful challenging struggling things that um, that come with uh, with not waiting for the boss you could say I mean it really depends on the person and a lot of my goal in working with people who are are nearing retirement or planning out of retirement is to get them to think about you know, what, what is this they're leaving behind and what it is they're retiring to and to get them to conceive of what this will look like and what their day-to-day life will look like. Um, I agree with you. I think, I don't necessarily think it needs to be a struggle, but I think there needs to be some, um, you know, purpose to, you know, our reason to continue living and people who don't develop that or, you know, just think about only leaving the job that they've been doing for however many decades behind are going to be sorely disappointed because they're going to get into retirement and it's going to be a total change of, you know, we don't have things to tell us we're good. We don't have anybody to pat us on the back anymore and tell us we're good and we're interesting. And thank you so much for your, your hard work. And so what I find in practice is that a lot of people who um, in retirement, they end up taking on projects that um, allow them to pursue either something that is adjacent to what they did in their career and mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe they're mentoring people or um, they're using like skills that they have to do something public policy related um, or something mm-hmm. interesting like that. Or yeah. some people just develop a, a hobby or, or they explore a hobby they've always had and spend a lot more time doing it. And those are the people who are happiest in retirement that they, they, they have you know things that they're doing, projects that they're working on, whether it's, you know, like I said, a, like a more formalized something or more like a hobby. Um, so yeah, we spend time thinking about that. You know, I'm not gonna let someone retire who just wants to leave their job that's, that's, that's maybe where they're at when they first come to me. But by the time yeah. that they actually do make the decision to retire, we're going to have a lot more understanding of what it is they want to actually spend time doing in retirement. Oh, so, so you're saying that you won't let them retire if they don't know what they're going to do afterwards. 
I mean, that's a bit of an extreme statement. Yeah. But yes, we, we need to know what we're retiring to before we make the decision to retire, because if we are just doing it simply to leave the job, uh, we're going to be very disappointed, but also my numbers and my, my projections are going to be totally off as well, because if you don't know what you're going to be spending your time doing, um, you know, we, it's hard to imagine what we're actually going to be spending money on too. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that was one thing that you put in the book that actually was shocking to me. Actually, you said that uh, you called it or actually somebody else called it a quote, invisible epidemic. And the invisible epidemic is um, adults, right? Like 60, you know, like people who have retired suddenly developing drug and alcohol addictions because, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you, you retire and then you suddenly realize, what next? What do I do now? Right. I have nothing meaningful to really sustain me. And then, um, and he said 11% of, uh, 11% of hospitalizations related to people who are, I think it was over 65, um, are related to drugs and alcohol, which is something mm-hmm. that is really slightly concerning. And it makes me sort of believe that, um, that meaning, right. Like do, even though you're retired, you still need something meaningful to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it could just be spending time with your grandkids or spending time with your loved ones, right? That, that is a pursuit that's worthwhile. But, um, you know, we need to examine that of like who we're going to be spending time with and what we enjoy, um, what we enjoy doing. And if it involves, you know, being around more people or less people, I mean, it's all personality dependent, but you do have to explore those things before you make a definitive decision about your retirement. Makes sense. Well, there's one question I do want to ask you. So, and this is something that I found was uh, really powerful. There was this concept, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it right, but um, it's a Japanese word. I think it was called ikagi, right? Ikigai, ikigai. Ikigai. Yeah, there's no Mm -hmm. way I was getting that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the the translation, the rough translation to Ikigai is uh, your purpose in life, right? The purpose of you being on this earth. And you're Mm -hmm. saying, you said that it constantly changes, but at the same time, it is great to know what your purpose in life is at all times. So I must ask you, Katie North, what is your Ikigai? Uh, so my ikigai is working with people to help them explore their life and their finances and making sure their values dovetail with that. Um, you know, it's it's why I started my company instead of going to work for another financial planning company um, that I'm able to serve, you know, women who are in their 30s and 40s versus the vast majority of this industry, which only serves people who have $1 million or more saved already for retirement or for, um, you know, have wealth to begin with. So, um, you know, there's, there, it's a big mission, right? It's, it's a big mission to, to work with people who aren't typically served by the wealth management industry. Mm, interesting. Oh, so your business. So I know in your book, you interviewed about, you said 50 people and a lot of them were entrepreneurial women, correct? Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, is that, is that your client base? Is your client base specifically, you know, entrepreneurial women or women who are, um, who are not traditionally served in the finance industry? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely women who uh, probably are currently in the corporate world, but they're trying to figure out what their next steps are and their move, their next move to try to become self-employed. Um, and so, you know, one of my big goals is to demystify, 
you know, entrepreneurship is this difficult, tough hustle and um, show people a path of how it doesn't have to be that way. And it can be actually a way to get a lot more power and purpose back into your life. Yeah. Well, I find, so I was, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a little, um, a little, a little fun topic, you know? So I was watching uh, Mary Poppins the other day and um, one of the characters, you know, one of the main characters, a very spiritual guy, you know? And, um, and he says, he, he had a great quote. He goes, he was talking about the children's father, Mr. Banks, who, who worked for a bank and um, just mm-hmm. put those connections right there. Wow. I did not think of that <laughs> one, but um but he said that Mr. Banks, this, this banker who is, you know, not very spiritual, but at the same time only cares about money, very greedy, all these things. Um, he is stuck in a cage. He is stuck in not a physical cage, but he actually called it a bank shaped cage because some mm. people, you know, their minds are restricted to these things such as money, such as fame, such as pleasure, such as, you know, all these things that really, um, that or corporatism right like being an employee you know this uh restricts our freedom to do all the things that we really want to do so do you find that um entrepreneurship or the fear of entrepreneurship is something something kind of like that people living in a cage and they're they feel very restricted by being an employee you know not taking the risk and um and yeah they feel like they're sort of in a cage yeah, I mean, I think most um, most people who come to see me initially to, to for me to be their financial advisor, um, their one of their goals is to leave their corporate job, really? and most of them won't define it on, on a time scale. They'll say one day, mm-hmm. I want to do that one day, and I don't even know what I'd actually do, but I want to do something that's not you know working for the man anymore. And so it is a very common dream that people have. And I think it is a lot about because you you get put in a box and you have a lot less freedom and you're actually asked to be like dehumanize yourself a lot of the time. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of literature and books written about um, in the knowledge economy, right? How we need creativity and we need creative outlets in order to do our job well. But the corporate, Mm. the corporate environment is all about, making the widget and growing every year, growing quarter over quarter, selling more things, um, being less and less human. And, yeah. and it, they're at odds with one another. They're at odds with, with us as, as we are humans. right? Yeah. Um, and so, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like the corporate life today still does put you in a box and, and isn't very human at all. And you get to a point after you've done it for a while and you've maybe checked some boxes and feel good about where you're at, um, making a good living and you realize, well, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And so it's just a common journey that I see a lot of people on and, um, you know, I feel for them because I I experienced it too. Yeah. Well, you said in your book and this, this, I literally like, I sent this to a few of my friends. Cause I was like, this is something that really, you know, I get on my friends all the time about, and it, it kills me, you know, every I'll, I'll put in, I'll say right here, everyone says they'll achieve their dreams quote one day, but most don't. And that's the thing you said, every single person that you meet has the plan, you know, like they'll say like, Oh yes, I, I will achieve my dreams one day. But the problem is that 
everybody says they're going to achieve their dreams someday. It's like, how could you distinguish between the people who achieve them and the people who don't? And um, do you believe, what do you believe is the way that people could go and achieve their dreams without just leaving it in that one day either? Well, I think you have to, you have to work against your own status quo bias, right? We all want to be, stay safe and we all want to find the easiest, you know, direct way to make decisions. And a lot of times that means not making a decision to change and staying with the status quo. And so we all have that and it's, it keeps us safe. It makes things easier. Right. But, you know, to take a step back and to do some self-reflection and to say, okay, well, what would it be like if I did, if I let go of my status quo bias and I didn't just do what everybody expected of me or what people are asking of me. Um, and, to give yourself that permission and to do that self-reflection is so powerful. And it's the, the first step in, in actually achieving your big dreams. Um, and and so, gets- I mean, if you take anything away from the book, I mean, that's it. It's, it's self-reflection is extremely powerful. Yeah. And also, I mean, what you just described right there, that is the process of unlearning, right? Like, yeah. you know, like when you say you're going to achieve your dreams someday, if you say someday and you don't say right now, that means that there's something in your what some status quo, some some mindset barrier that is in the way of you achieving it. And you need to un- unlearn that one thing, whatever it is, to really go and achieve it. Um, my advice to anybody doing it, and I don't know if you'd give the same advice as somebody who's seen like the entire career trajectory of a lot of people. My advice is start now right? My advice is start now and whatever you can do, because for the people who say, you know, I'm going to start, I'm going to go through the crappy corporate job for 10 years, and then I'll do it at the, at the end of my 10 year period. My whole thing is your soul might die along the way. You know, Mm -hmm. you might, you might, um, you might lose that passion or you might establish more mental barriers as you continue to go through. So my advice is start now. I would love to know if you have the same advice or if it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I don't know, it's a little bit more complicated or layered because <laughs> through all of our life experiences, whether or not they were quote unquote good or bad, we learn. Right. And so, yeah. um, there's always an opportunity to change and shift and pivot in our lives. Right. It's never a, Oh, I didn't do this. So now I never can. It's never a, I went down this path. So now I got to keep going down this path. I think, you know, a really important, um, permission that we all need to give ourselves is the permission to change our minds and to change Mm. our paths. And so if you let yourself have that permission, then it doesn't matter if you pursue the corporate job for 10 years and then decide to change your mind, right? Because you're going to learn from that experience. Just the same way, it doesn't matter if you start off from scratch and you say, I'm going to do, I'm going to follow my dreams every step of the way. Um, You know, you may stumble I, in either direction, right? Um, but you're going to learn things from both experiences and it will it will mold you into whatever you end up becoming. Hmm, interesting. So you're saying that uh, sort of, I think, I think this is the biggest problem, dropping the ego a little bit, you know, dropping our, we all have an ego and trying to be able to drop, you know, that idea that um, moving, moving out of the place that I am right now, let's, let's use money, for example, moving out of the $100,000 job and moving down into the, you know, the place of financial uncertainty, you know, that we, we need to drop our ego first before we, um, before we even get to anywhere near that. 
Yeah. I mean, I think ego can be a, a, a stumbling block, certainly. Um, yeah. But a lot of self-reflection is a good antidote for that, um, yeah. is, is to figure out, you know, you know, what, where, where are these feelings coming from? What is the true motivation behind some of this? Yeah. And you talked a lot about that. And I think that was one of the most important things in your book, The Resiliency Effect. And I read it uh, through and through, and I highly suggest that people buy it. I just want you to give, for anyone who listened through this whole podcast, a, uh, a little pitch as to why somebody should buy The Resiliency Effect, which will be in the description below this podcast or this YouTube video. Yeah. So, I mean, the book is a way to unlock um, what your dreams are, but unlock the sort of tools and systems for achieving them. And it's going to be different than what you think. It's not about taskless, doing more in a day, um, getting another rung on your career ladder. It's about doing deep inner work and yeah. discovering for yourself what is truly going to um, make your life worthwhile. Mm. I love that. I love that. Katie North, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Nick.